0: Welcome to Studio Two on a Thursday.
1: I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi wolfman Uh You don't need me to tell you that today is going to be another hot one, high around 95. So we're going to turn our minds to cooler things this hour with a history of ice. We have the author of a new book called Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, a cool history of a hot commodity. And it is a fascinating history that includes the story of a Philadelphia man who popularized ice cream. It's so, so interesting.
0: We want you to email us any questions you might have about ice at studio
1: two at org. And no phone calls today, unfortunately, we just want to acknowledge that we do plan to bring phone calls back. We're just having a little technical issue that we hope to get straightened away quickly. Your phone calls are a big part of this show and we would love to miss you. We (laughs) miss you guys. We would love to hear from you and we're going to hear from you soon.
0: Yes. And in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the spectacular photographs from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's been a year since the first cosmic snapshots came back. We'll talk with an astronomer about what they are revealing.
1: And of course... Like every Thursday, we've got Studio Two Trivia. <laughs> trivia <on>
0: Thursday!
1: <laughs> but before we get to that, and I know you're, you're pumped about I that. I love shit. saying that. <laughs> I don't know if you like trivia, but you do like saying Studio Two I Trivia. I do. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to do some news, and we're going to start with a news event that you witnessed, Sherry, mm-hmm. last night. Tell us about that Beyonce concert.
0: Well, you can probably tell by the extra, you know, under the eye cream today uh, that I stayed up late. Queen B was amazing, Avi. Worth it. It was totally worth the late night. It was totally worth every dollar I spent. I will not reveal how much I coughed <laughs> up for my two tickets. But yesterday we played my very favorite song that she sings. And guess what? How I knew I had to be there. The very first song she sang, "Dangerously in Love," my favorite.
1: Wow. She heard. She must have heard the show. I don't yeah, know. I, I would imagine she redid the setlist after hearing after that. After hearing it, too. I mean, that's my guess. Let me tell you, she started with ballads. She
0: sat atop a baby grand piano. She's mm. so gracious. She had seven outfit changes. Okay, you were taking notes. I was taking notes because I know you might ask me about it. <laughs> Ever man. the I journalist. Stay on top of my game. <laughs> themes range from renaissance to opulence so much more Blue Ivy performed these are just that's, that's her, her daughter her daughter Blue that. Ivy her oldest daughter um, there were fireworks fire levitation she levitated in she the levitated sta- she was like floating in the stadium wow. with lights all around her the fans came came with it okay body parts exposed (laughs) you're so excited i love this in aluminum foil looking outfits it was just it was an experience and she is by far one of
1: the best performers and the level of production flawless um i don't think there's any concert that could get me as excited as that concert got you excited like it, I feel like your your level of investment in this—it's almost taking me aback a bit.
0: And I almost feel like I need to walk around with a Beyonce fan I mean, because <laughs> I am a fan. But she, this the fan, you know, she's known for her hair just yes. blowing back so poetically and gracious, great gracefully. Yeah, and she did that, and it was just really great. Her dancers were amazing, set shifts, props, the lighting. <laughs> I mean, I I was just my mouth remained open, you're so excited. you know, in a distance, and just singing along yeah. um, every possible song. I mean, she sang at least 35 songs. I'm a little jealous. Yeah, it was really good. It, wor- it was worth it. And this was my fourth time seeing her. And I'm in awe even more than I was the third time. I wow. Saw her. Yeah,
1: that's impressive. That's really impressive. Yeah. You've seen someone and they still blow you away.
0: It was just so good. Yeah. So. let's
1: let 's keep it rolling with more star talk here um, we 're doing metaphorical stars <laughs> the <laughs> Nom- nominees yeah, nominees yeah. for the seventy fifth annual Emmy Awards announced yesterday. What do we got, Jerry
0: Well, um, you know some shows you 've probably heard of they 're on the nominations list, like secession, the white Lotus Abbott Elementary, of course, but there's some local connections. Um, outstanding supporting actress in a drama series. Aubrey Plaza from The White Lotus from Wilmington, Delaware. Bet you didn't know that. Uh, I knew that. You knew that, of course you knew that. (laughs) A standing supporting actress in a limited or anthology series of movie. Maria Bello from Beef is from Norristown. And of course Abbott Elementary on the list. always. Always on the list since they come out. We've claimed them. Quinta Brunson, um, outstandingly actress nomination in a comedy series. Of course, she's from West Philly. Also, Cheryl Lee Ralph. We're claiming her now. Yes. You know, uh, from Abbott Elementary. And we have a little clip. Thank you
2: very much. And I thank you. And I love H.Y.Y. I love this. <laughs> <you all. laughs>
1: we and hope she says we that. We hope she wins. Win. When she wins. When she wins.
0: Because yeah. she won last year for the very first time. And um, we hope she wins again. And since she loves us. And yeah, that, 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 way,
1: that clip was from, uh, she was on Radio Times Regional Roundup. Thank you for the shout out, Cheryl Lee Ralph. Obviously, the the backdrop of all this um, is not so happy. Yeah. Which is that there's a huge WGA strike right now that's roiling Hollywood. It looks like there's now going to be a SAG strike. So we don't know if this show will happen. We don't know when it will happen. We don't know how the awards will be given out. Disclaimer, uh, Cherry and I are part of the broader union that SAG is a part of, but we have no sort of direct bearing on the strike we don't vote on its authorization and we would not be striking if Mm -hmm. indeed that's what they choose to do but just putting that disclaimer out there and so um this is like a happy and a sad moment for for the whole industry and we will see where it goes yeah and uh, by the way the
0: tentatively the awards are scheduled for september 18th at 8 on fox so there you go uh and i understand there's we're talking about stars we're talking about movies we are talking about films we're talking and there's a new docu-series
1: yes more star talk Can more you star believe talk
0: it? it's thursday
1: <laughs> what a yeah. theme we have going here um so this weekend there's a new docu-series coming out about the life of wilt chamberlain philadelphia mm. native legendary nba center um it's called goliath it's going to be on showtime it's getting some pretty strong reviews um, for the film itself you know chamberlain is an incredible figure one of, if not the greatest basketball player of all time, a completely game-breaking, game-changing athlete who really, in, in some ways, made the modern yeah. NBA. Um, of course, it's getting attention for all of that because apparently it tells his life story quite well. It's also getting attention because you will hear his voice in the film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, Chamberlain's been dead, sadly, for a long time. Mm-hmm. You hear his voice through AI regeneration mm. of his voice that narrates some parts of the film I should point out this was cleared by his estate um, this was done up front there was there was a big controversy when this was done for an Anthony Bourdain documentary yeah, they did remember the same that. thing yeah it was a huge conversation and, and when that happened it was sort of revealed at the last second that mm-hmm. this was going to be in the doc the wilt thing has been up front from the start I think they're hoping that tempers a little bit of the pushback, but. This is certainly a controversial movie making method that we're going yeah. to see probably more and more.
0: Yeah. And it's one of the sticking points is part of the discussion that we see among actors and, and others. Yes. And because you can literally bring someone back to life, but also you can take someone living yes. and use their likeness, their their sound and, and make money off of it. This is approved, but it's not always been approved. And, and w- it
1: sounds y- you mentioned the pretty straight- Good. Yeah. It, it sounds really good. Uh, I'm actually excited to see it. But but you mentioned right the, the strike, the labor issues, right? So mm-hmm. if you think about it, just theoretically, there might have been a voice actor yes. who would have voiced Wilt Chamberlain and made, yes, and made, made money. So, and made money. Yeah. That is... Been supplemented by this AI regeneration mm-hmm. of Wilt Chamberlain's voice. Anyways, it looks interesting. Wilt Chamberlain, I think, is one of the pivotal figures in sort of yes. 20th century Philadelphia history. I would, I would go that big with it. So we shall see, and hopefully we can check it out. Showtime this weekend. It's called Goliath. Yeah. Um, and, so and now let's do more
0: stars. More stars, but this time like literal stars. Star stars. Uh, Did you see the incredible image that NASA released yesterday from the James Webb Space Telescope to celebrate its first year in operation, Javi?
1: I did see it, yes. (laughs) Gorgeous.
0: It's the Ro Ophiuchi complex some 390 light years away. It's a close-up of a swirling cloud of gases and dust and dozens of newborn stars. It is really, really spectacular. You probably remember two years ago that the James Webb Space Telescope, the most powerful space observatory ever, was launched. And a year later, the first snapshots and data came back, opening a window into distant regions of the universe. Swarthmore College astronomer Eric Jensen joins us now to talk about the telescope, what it has revealed about the cosmos and the questions they're still trying to unravel. Welcome to Studio 2.
3: Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Happy to be part of your star theme.
1: <laughs> you're, our, you're our number one star.
3: Absolutely. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I don't think I can compete with Beyonce, but we've got some cool stuff.
1: To All right. Second that. behind Beyonce, but above will. Um, so uh, we wanted to first have you maybe describe the images that, that were just released, uh, what they're showing us. Uh, they, uh, they capture our attention in part because they are so beautiful. But if you could just describe a little bit what they look like and what we're seeing with those images of, of Ro Ophiuchi.
3: Yeah, I've been staring at this image since it came out. It's really amazing. So the so the big picture is that this is a region uh a big cloud of gas and dust. You can see a lot of gas in this image. You can see some really dark areas where the dust is blocking the light, and this is an area where new stars are forming. So these stars that you see in this image have formed um relatively recently, maybe only a million years ago. Uh, I say a million as if that was a short amount of time. (laughs) On human scales, it's long, but on star scales, uh, it's pretty short. So these are baby stars. And we're seeing sort of the remnant of um, the gas and dust that they formed from. And probably we have good evidence now that while the stars are forming, that there are planets forming around them at the same time. So we're seeing gas that some of it collapsed to form the stars, some of it is still remaining there and getting lit up and kind of blown away in these big jets by the stars. Um, but just wonderful complexity and, uh, and beauty in this image.
0: Yeah, the, the James Webb Telescope is considered to be one of the most powerful in the world. What have astronomers learned over the past year about what the telescope can actually do?
3: Yeah, it's been a great year just watching this roll in and seeing the new discoveries. Um, and there's there's a huge number of them, but I'll just highlight a few. One related to what I was just talking about, about planets forming around stars. Um, the the Webb Telescope is a great tool for trying to learn more about those planets. So one of the things I've been able to do is look at some planets that we already knew about and figure out whether they have atmospheres around them mm-hmm. and whether those atmospheres have water in them the way we do in, in Earth's atmosphere. Um, and even just starting to be able to actually take pictures of some of those, those planets, ones that are a little farther from the stars. Um, so that's relatively nearby, by astronomical standards, going much farther away. One of the things it's been able to do is to detect some of the very first galaxies that formed right after the Big Bang. So. So one of the cool things in astronomy is um we can essentially look into the past so you mentioned that this robofuyuki cloud is 390 light years away that means that it took 390 years for the light to travel to us and so we're seeing it as it was about 400 years ago mm. with the james webb space telescope we can look at things that are billions of light years away so we're literally looking at the universe. The, the emitted light from some of these first galaxies right after galaxies began to form about 10 billion years ago. So it's sort of a time machine hmm. to look at some of these first galaxies. And, um, and, and then swinging back closer to home. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I'm just curious then, because we're getting to peer back into the past. And we humans have developed all these theories about how the universe started and expanded. Like, are, are those theories holding up based on what we're seeing in the, in these images and the data, or are they starting to wobble a little bit? Sort of the existing theories.
3: Yeah, I would say a big picture, they're they're holding up, but there's interesting details that are um, that are we're learning new things about. So there were predictions about how many galaxies there should be a certain time after a big bang and what they should look like. Uh, and one of the things we found is that there's more galaxies forming sooner than we thought. So looking mm-hmm. all the way back, we see bigger, brighter galaxies um, than we thought would be there.
0: Yeah, and we have about a little less than a minute to wrap up, but I want you to look forward. Uh, what Are there questions that you all will be looking to answer going forward? What are the main? Yeah, I
3: think sure. There's there's a huge number. One of the big (laughs) ones is what do we see in terms of uh, potentially habitable planets? You know, do Mm. we see planets that have atmospheres that seem like they might be like Earth? Um, And then what do we see as we look even farther back for how these very early galaxies formed? Um, And then always the biggest thing is there'll be discoveries that we didn't even know to ask the questions. There's things that just come out of nowhere. And that's one of the fun things about doing this.
1: Well, I got to commend you because I think I actually understood what you were saying. It's really hard for me to understand (laughs) this type of stuff. That was uh, Eric Jensen, professor at Swarthmore College, uh, talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. Eric, thanks so much for joining us on Studio Two today.
3: You're welcome. Great to be here.
0: And coming up next, author Amy Brady is standing by to talk about the cool history of ice.
1: (laughs) Well done, producers.
0: I love that. The familiar sound of the ice cream. (laughs) person. <laughs> the Coming down person. The street.
1: Right. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Greg. I'm Avi Wolfman, Aaron. Sorry, I can't give you any ice cream, but I can give you a great story we have today. Mm-hmm. You know it's hot outside. In fact, much of the country has been dealing with dangerous heat waves. On July 3rd, the Earth's average temperature hit an all-time record high, according to early data. So, of course, we are all looking for ways to cool down, seek refuge in air conditioning, dip into a cold pool for a swim or perhaps cool off with an ice cold drink or some of the ice cream that was just alluded to.
0: (laughs) So when we saw Amy Brady's fascinating new book on the history of ice, we couldn't resist talking about a cooler topic. Brady is author of Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity, and is also the executive director of Orion
1: Magazine. Amy Brady is... Welcome to Studio Two.
4: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: So happy to have you. If you have any ICE-related questions in the audience or perhaps some comments, you can email us, studio2 at WHYY.org, or you can respond to WHYY on Twitter with the hashtag Studio Two.
0: And I meant to say Orion Magazine. Sorry about that, Amy. Um, We want to jump right in and sort of I realized how much I take ice for granted as I was drinking a very cool beverage, reading your book. Um, I want you to rewind us back to the days where there was no ice. Can you describe um, or or, or say ice wasn't everywhere? Could you describe what it was like living um, a couple of hundred years ago during those times?
4: Yeah, it was, to my mind, deeply unpleasant, (laughs) Uh, you know, before before ice was everywhere um, and, you know, keep it keep in mind, you know, before electric refrigeration, the only people who had regular access to ice were those who lived in cool climates where ice formed naturally, at least during a few months uh, during the year. Before ice, um, you know, people uh, would had imperfect means for preserving their food. They couldn't just stick it in, uh, into an icebox, let alone a refrigerator. So they used canning uh, and salting, which were imperfect, and that led to widespread food poisoning. Food poisoning was much more rampant uh, and uh, familiar to people than than it is today. Um, there, there wasn't a brewery industry, which I know I have relatives that uh, would have been very upset by that.
1: <laughs> Me too.
4: Um, you know, people uh, only ate seafood if they lived, you know, within a mile or so from the coast because you couldn't ship uh, seafood safely. Uh, and water uh, or any beverage for that matter had to be drunk at room temperature. So imagine if it's a really hot day or if you're sick with a fever, a taste of, of water would be, uh, you know, at the temperature of sweat.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to think mm-hmm. pe- some people living in warm climates would have never really had a cool drink in their life. Right,
4: Amy? Uh, it's it's likely, you know, unless they lived, you know, uh, during a place where ice formed, you know, at least sometimes they, they wouldn't have had any access to it. Um, before the ice trade, uh, the only people who had ice were those who could walk to a nearby river or lake and carve a chunk out of it.
1: Huh. And then comes this guy. Mm-hmm. Frederick Tudor, the Boston Ice King, who I gotta be honest seems like a bit of a tyrant, but a, a visionary. Tell us uh, about this gentleman and how he changed everything.
4: I think your description is perfect. He was a a a tyrant uh, but also a visionary. Uh in his uh late teens, uh he landed on this idea that if he could carve large blocks of ice out of his uh, the lake on his family estate and ship it to people living in warm climates around the world, he'd make a killing. <laughs> And, you know, uh, everybody thought he was a madman for even suggesting the idea because this was a time um, before people had ever shipped ice. So they would have to figure out how to do that. Um, and, you know, it took years and years of trial and error, but eventually he succeeded. And you're right. He changed everything.
0: Yeah. And he, once he got ice to warmer uh, climate, um, it was interesting to me. It actually made me laugh out loud that. People literally had no idea what to do with it. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and they were, they were mad yeah. Yeah. that it melted. Could you talk about the <laughs> education piece? Because it, it, was, it there was a bit of a climb and a learning curve <laughs> right. when you take something like ice from a cold climate to a warm climate. And tell about that story of sort of introducing ice to places that may have never seen it.
4: Yeah. So one of the reasons why it took so long for him to turn a profit was because when he arrived uh, first in the Caribbean, which is where he went before he came to the southern United States and territories, um, nobody there had ever experienced ice. So they wouldn't just know what Mm. to do with it. And that hadn't occurred to Frederick Tudor. So when he arrived, uh, there was also, there was no infrastructure. <laughs> there were no ice houses because nobody had ice. And so his ice basically melted away on the ship. And then the few folks that he did manage to convince to buy his ice, those people were very confused because they paid a handsome you know, amount for this you know, glistening ice-cold substance that would just melt away. And they were very angry. And um, so, part of the initial, I suppose you could say, marketing plan to get people on board for buying ice was this uh, outreach and education. He had to teach people how to how to use it, how to take care of it, how to store it so that it wouldn't melt.
1: And wasn't there? uh, I'm trying to remember in the book. I believe there was a part where he sort of partnered with some proprietors in some of these warmer places to try to seed the ground a little bit so that that ice would catch on it would be integrated into into products drinks that that people already were familiar with how did that work
4: yeah so cocktails saved the day Mm. (laughs) for frederick tudor (laughs) um when he was in uh, havana cuba um he knew that nobody on the island trusted him (laughs) and his weird ice, but he knew that everybody trusted their local baristas and bartenders because cafe culture was dominant in Cuba at this time. And so he, in order to get people to understand just how wonderful ice is, he went to these local drink makers and said, look, I'm going to give you my ice for free. So that way you can put it in your drinks. And he showed them how to do that. And you could be, you'll be able to sell it for the same price as your lukewarm drinks. Uh, Cause I'm not going to charge you anything. So, and let's just see what your clients like the best. And well, (laughs) just like today, you really can't argue with a drink on the rocks. And uh, folks clamored for it. Um, You know, uh, they absolutely loved icy uh, coffee and cocktails. And then after he succeeded at that, he taught those same cafe owners how to make ice cream, and uh, ice cream became a veritable obsession in Cuba and and arguably in the United States as well.
0: And I gotta ask because I'm thinking the the industry originally began with natural ice that is ice that was basically harvested from water sources after they froze over. I'm thinking to myself, this can't is this sanitary (laughs) you know um (laughs) could you describe how it worked and and how um sort of like some of the health standards developed around this this natural um resource
4: the answer was no it wasn't sanitary (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination um just as today there are many things growing and living in lakes and rivers there certainly was in frederick tudor's time um, and then, you know, as the Industrial Revolution uh, reached its peak, um, rivers and lakes by cities, you know, like the the Schuylkill River through Philadelphia, it was filthy I mean, um, because factories and farms would leak their waste into these bodies of water, the same bodies of water that would freeze and then would soon touch the mouths of thirsty Americans everywhere. So it was very, very gross. I can't imagine. And then, Schuylkill ice. Um, Schuylkill
0: ice in my <laughs> cocktail, but it was I'm real. sorry for interrupting, but that, that image it's,
1: it's, jumped in it my is, it does. I mean, for if you live in Philadelphia, Amy, it's sort of, it, it is like a <laughs> spine shivering type of it, thought. But people, but until one point, I guess that actually, that actually did stop at one point, right? Uh, Philly put a put a, a ban on ice harvesting at one point in the immediate vicinity, right? But until like the like late 1800s, right, people could get their ice from the Schuylkill River.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the city eventually did put a ban on it. But the thing is, is that the the ice kings, you know, the people that owned these mm-hmm. ice harvesting companies, all they had to do was just go slightly north, you know, um, beyond where the ban couldn't reach them. But the rivers really weren't that much cleaner. Yeah. So, people got very sick. You know, cholera outbreaks were quite common. And, you know, if it weren't for the arrival of uh, manufactured ice or man made created ice, um, we probably wouldn't be using ice today uh, because confidence in the substance just plummeted, as you can imagine. Now,
1: let's talk about manufactured mm. ice. This, I think, for me, was the most fascinating part of the whole book. And it's a fascinating book overall. But the story of poor. John Gorey, I, I hope know. i'm saying his his name <laughs> oh, right wow. um, yeah. there, almost this rogue inventor comes up with this idea of, of manufactured ice not harvested um, from from a water source, and basically gets no credit and no financial reward. Tell us his his story, his forgotten story. Um, And and how this this guy kind of acting on his own, seemingly created transformed the Mm -hmm. way we eat um, in this country. So, John Gorey, go.
4: (laughs) (laughs) John Gorey was trying to help people. He was a a doctor of little means who moved to a tiny port town on Florida's Gulf Coast called Apalachicola um, to fight yellow fever. Uh, yellow fever was a disease that ravaged the American South every summer, and especially Apalachicola, because it's surrounded by swamps um, and in the Gulf. And what doctors didn't realize in John Gorey's time is that the disease was transmitted by mosquito bites. All doctors knew was that the disease got worse in the summer and then it waned in the cooler months. And so John Gorey, trying to find an innovative way to fight this disease, thought, well, maybe if I can get my patients' bodies to mimic the cycle of the seasons, that is, they could make his feverish patients cooler, he could cure them of, of the disease. But this was the 1840s. Uh, ice rarely forms naturally, uh, certainly not in the summer <laughs> in Florida. Yeah. The ice trade had only just arrived in Florida at this time, and so ice was very expensive. Uh, people in the region referred to it as white gold. Mm. Um, And so Gorey knew if he was going to get enough ice to, quote unquote, cure his patients, he was going to have to learn to make it himself. So he attempted to do so. It took him years of trial and error, but he finally built a machine that um, was slow but could produce a lot of ice using the same compression techniques that most of our refrigerators use today. And when he announced his invention to the world, you know, he thought he was going to be met with, you know, gratitude and cries of joy. And instead, he was met with cries of blasphemy.
1: Yeah, blasphemy. Uh, I've explained that part because people really thought he was some sort of dark wizard or something.
4: Yeah, yeah. The response was, how dare a mere man make ice? Only God can create ice. And, you know, this this was a, you know, a tiny, it was a rural town. Florida wasn't even a state yet by, you know, at this point uh, in time. There was, um, you know, a lot of superstition surrounding medicine and cold itself at this time, but probably contributing even more (laughs) to this issue was the fact that in the room where Gory announced his invention, he announced it to a room full of very influential people. Frederick Tudor, Mm -hmm. the Ice King, had people present. And they went back and told Tudor what was going on. And Tudor did not take lightly a threat to his empire. And there is not a bigger threat to a naturalized empire than mechanically made ice. And so it's hard for a historian to prove this happened, but there is a lot of evidence that suggests this happened, uh, that Frederick Tudor planted a lot of slanderous headlines in newspapers up and down the eastern seaboard. Mm, Very mm, fascinating.
0: mm. Tudor.
1: Come on, Tudor.
0: Bad boy over there. (laughs) Um, I want to say, if you're just tuning in, our guest is Amy Brady author of ice from mixed drinks to skating rinks, a cool history of a hot commodity. We want to hear your questions. What do you want to know about ice? Are you an ice lover? I know a lot of them, including myself, email us studio two at whyy.org. Um, I want to like fast forward a bit okay. to when, um, ice became more popularized and I want to talk about the ice man. <laughs> i be not talking about this. I want to talk about the Iceman, and and I specifically want to like reference the picture of your on your book cover. It's like this guy um, in this dirty overalls, but he looks really really cool. He's mm-hmm. holding a big old chunk of ice with some tongs, got a pipe in his mouth, and this was the guy with a rugged beard. Okay, this was the dude who would weekly come in people's houses and bring. This this liquid gold or this big, you know, this gold that you talked about uh, to people's home to help keep them cool. Could you talk about once ice worked its way into, um, I guess, mass distribution and the importance of this person and how this ice man was looked at?
4: Yeah. So once ice became um, a, a bona fide industry, uh, the ice company owners still had to figure out how to complete the cold chain, right? How to get their product into people's homes. And so like so many other commodities of the day, like milk or mail delivery, they hired men to bring their cubes of ice uh, to into people's homes and then to heave those big blocks into ice boxes where the ice could be stored for, you know, a few days or, a week at a time. Well, when I was doing my research for this book, I was fascinated by the fact that there are so many popular songs of the era with lyrics about housewives falling in love with the Mm. Iceman. There are uh, uh, Valentine's Day cards just rife with puns. About oh, the sexy Iceman. <laughs> um, of course, there's the early 20th century play by Eugene O'Neill called "The Iceman Cometh," which is the title is derived from a the pun of a joke that the protagonist makes about an affair his wife may have had with the Iceman. Oh, gosh. Um, so there's this nationwide kind of fascination and and almost an anxiety surrounding the Iceman. And I was thinking, why is that the case? Because I didn't find that uh, about the milkman or the mailman. And what I landed on is that unlike these other Delivery people, ice men actually came inside the house. Mm. Um, they crossed what some people would have considered to be a forbidden threshold, because women. This was a time when uh, there was anxiety around women being alone in a space with a man who wasn't her husband, um, and so you know there was this. Nationwide anxiety around him, around the Iceman. And that anxiety seemed to have peaked during the world's, uh, the world wars one and two, when many, many men Mm. were away from their wives overseas fighting. Uh, One of my favorite cultural examples is a song that was written in the 1930s that was later popularized by ray charles the lyrics go something like i'm moving to the outskirts of town and uh, i'm getting i'm buying my wife a frigid air, so that that ice man doesn't have to come around
1: oh my i got i gotta say um my grandfather was a lawyer here in philly and I once asked him, if you hadn't been a lawyer, what would you have been? And he told me, Iceman. And now I feel very differently about that than and, I once felt. And I just want to say the ice men
0: were hauling these 50-pound blocks of ice, and mm-hmm. they were very, like, chiseled. So it wasn't right. just some regular dude. Like, it was a chiseled dude. And many of them, according to your book, were Italian immigrants. So they had that... You know, they had a whole mystique about them at that time. It was very, that's a very interesting, I think, part of your book.
4: Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying so. Yeah, they, they were very chiseled. Um, I mean, ice delivery was hard work. You know, in fact, a famous football player of the day, Red Grange, um, reportedly delivered ice in the summertime to stay in shape for football.
1: Can we backtrack a little bit? Because we, we're talking about John Gorey and we kind of left it with this idea of, well, he creates the idea. Idea he actually actualizes uh, mechanical ice and gets you know um, basically submarined by the the ice powers of the time, but then people do like s- steal his idea more or less popularize it and mechanical ice goes crazy um, and it totally changes a lot of stuff, including food culture. You mentioned earlier. Ice is what allows us to get fish inland. We can take apples from northern climates and send them south, peaches from south to north, you know, whatever it is. Um, But it also was a turning point in the brewing industry, which you sort of referenced earlier. Now, people might be confused because beer has been around for a long time. But how did how did ice first natural, but then mechanical change uh, beer culture forever?
4: Well, beer culture in America largely started with a beer called lager, and lager uh, is a type of beer that can only be brewed and stored at super cold temperatures. Uh, recipes for lager came to the United States largely from German immigrants who settled in the upper Northwest uh, and would be able to harvest ice from the Great Lakes to, to make their products. Uh, But with the arrival of the ice trade, suddenly ice became much more available um, because there was an infrastructure for it. Um, So ice could be shipped along the railroads and uh, via boats. And so this highly localized beer of the upper Midwest suddenly was able to be shipped anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the continental 48 states. And so it's in this region where we see some of the first large American breweries crop up, um, you know, Pabst, um, you know, Anheuser-Busch, Miller, um, all of the big guys uh, are largely from the Midwest because of ice. And I got to
0: ask sort of piggyback on that because... Beer was possible, but also there were many um, innovations in healthcare as well um, that made it easier to, to care for patients thanks to ICE. Can you talk about that a little bit?
4: yeah so in the you know in the early early days um you know ice was used much like you know you or i might use it in our own home uh it was used to reduce swelling um to help you know relieve a patient from fever you know it's a, a form of pain relief in some ways um and you know that was in and of itself pretty transformational because prior to the ice trade there was a widespread suspicion among doctors of cold You know heat was something just to deal with it was a mere nuisance but cold was something to avoid at all costs but once doctors realized that there were some health benefits of ice that that changed um and with that a kind of psychological change, uh, that opened up new types of um, of thinking about ice, and experiments started to take place, and those experiments gave way to new technologies, experimental technologies that we have today, such as cryotherapy mm-hmm. for various types of cancers. Um, that's that's a therapy that uses tiny ice crystals uh, that are injected into tumors to to kill them or to make them smaller, and also a uh, uh, a therapy called therapeutic hypothermia which is the process of lowering a patient's body to a dangerously low temperature, but within a healthcare context so that the body's being monitored. And this therapy is often used on, not often, but sometimes used on patients who've experienced a catastrophic event, like a brain injury or a heart attack. Uh, It helps to stabilize the body so that those organs have some time to repair themselves so that there's a greater chance of survival and recovery.
1: Well, our time is melting away. So I want to make sure before we wrap up to talk about uh, the Philly connection to ice cream, including uh, a black Philadelphian who was instrumental in popularizing ice cream. Could you give us that story uh, quickly before we before we have to wrap up? We got like a minute.
4: Great. So uh, a Philadelphian named Augustus Jackson was a free black man uh, alive in the mid 19th century who worked as a cook in the White House. And then when he finished his job there, he moved to Philadelphia and opened what was called a confectionery, uh, which was a store that served all kinds of sweet treats. Well, Augustus Jackson made ice cream, and he used the purest ice possible, the richest milk and sugar he can find. And his ice cream was unlike any ice cream that came before it, because uh, early ice cream was basically vanilla soup. (laughs) It was liquidy, it wasn't very good. He made this rich, delicious ice cream and people loved it. And what was so incredible about um, about this moment in time is that Jackson's confectionery was open to everybody. It was open to black patrons, white patrons, other patrons of color, Um, whereas previously ice cream was the dessert of presidents and elite folks, um, you know, who uh, who had many, many resources to make ice cream. But Jackson, uh, everybody. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Go. Sorry. Sorry. Finish that. Oh, oh.
4: no, that's okay. So, um, you know, through him, uh, many, many more people got a taste for ice cream. And then even more people got a taste for ice cream because he started uh, when it, he realized how popular it was, he started putting it in containers and selling it to other places, essentially creating one of America's first franchises. <laughs> it's
1: fascinating. Uh, I'll just tease it the, and, and the segment teasing 7-Eleven, Ponzi scheme, yes. blockbusters, all of those things have roots in ice. And Amy Brady details them in the book Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, a Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Amy, we really appreciate it and we love this conversation. Thanks for joining us on Studio Two.
4: Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. He's Avi Wolfman Errant. Still, and today <laughs> you are the host of Studio Two Thursday Trivia. Every
1: Thursday, I'm still here.
0: I know, and we have Lori from Chestnut Hill who will join us today. Lori, you're on Studio Two. Welcome. Hi. Can you guys hear me? Okay, I can hear you. Great,
1: coming through loud and clear. Oh my god. Yeah, we talked about
0: ice today. Got to ask you, before you get the question, got to ask you, are you a person who loves a lot of ice, or do you prefer your water room temperature?
5: Oh, my gosh. My daughter gives me such a hard time because I actually – have a filtered pitcher at room temperature.
1: Oh my gosh! Wow! So she's
0: like whatever ice.
1: <laughs> I, I I gotta say, I used to be like Lori. I was I'm more of an ice convert later in my life. Um, mm. I used to not really understand why because the water can already be cold if you want it to be. It's you, true. You could put it in the fridge or room temperature is fine. But then later, I kinda, I don't know. I got into ice a little later in my life. That might still happen to you, Lori.
5: I you know I'm good with ice in certain things like. My, you know, my my cocktails. Yeah, <laughs> even iced tea. I'd rather just have the whole thing be and, the iced tea. And, no and ice. there's a
0: whole iced tea story. And in the in,
1: book in, as well. in the book, there is a whole iced tea section. <laughs> well, we've learned a lot about Lori. I feel like I know you well. And um, <clears throat> I got to ask if you're ready to play some Studio Two trivia. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, so this is the way it works. We give you a multiple choice question. If you get it right, we will send you a coveted. Studio 2 grocery tote bag. Sound good, Lori?
5: Yay! That sounds perfect, because I walk to <laughs> walk to get my groceries all the time. Oh,
1: perfect. Okay, now I really hope you yeah. win. Uh, maybe I'll give you a hint. Okay. <laughs> so we talked about <laughs> Wilt Chamberlain earlier in the show. Wilt Chamberlain went to the same high school as which other famous Philadelphian? Is it A, Kobe Bryant, B, Noam Chomsky, C. Patty LaBelle or D. Will Smith?
5: Oh my gosh. It's definitely not Kobe because he went to Lower Merion. That's right. Good oh, job. Smart. Good, good, yeah.
1: good elimination. It's not um, Kobe.
5: <laughs> I don't know where the second person went. Oh, it's either Patty LaBelle or Will Smith. And I know Wilt went to Overbrook.
1: That is correct. Mm-hmm. You do. You do have that right. So you are trying to decide whether Patty LaBelle right. or Will Smith also went to Overbrook High School.
5: Ah! <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, 50-50 I'm shot gonna, here. I know. I know. Oh, I'm going to have to go with. Will? Yes! Winner, winner, chicken dinner.
1: Oh, I was really pulling for you, Lori, because you're such a lovely contestant. Will Smith also went to Overbrook High School. Um, First of all, how does it feel to be a champion?
5: Oh, my gosh. I just love winning. It's
1: so fun. We love having you on. Um, uh, I will uh, add a little... Uh, layers some more facts on yes, here please do. wilt is certainly the best nba player to come from overbrook but hardly the only one there have been 12 nba players that went to overbrook high school in west philadelphia that is tied for the most of any high school in pennsylvania according to the website basketball reference will smith did not make it to the nba but also a uh, phenomenally talented <laughs> just like Lori from chestnut hill congratulations again Lori.
5: <laughs> it was so, so fun. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah,
0: great job. And of course, Lori will be getting her grocery tote. I'm so happy. With Studio 2 prominently displayed. So it's about to be the weekend, Avi. WHYY's Tanya Pendleton has our list of things to do. Take it away, Tanya.
2: Not every great weekend starts with a blob, but this one does. Beware
0: of the blob. It creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor.
2: White through. The wall, a splotch, a Be careful the yes, it's Blobfest weekend again at the Colonial Theater in Phoenixville. Parts of the 1957 film were shot at the historic theater, including the Pope Classics runout scene, which is reenacted every year. <laughs> That's sold out, but there's plenty more to do over the three-day weekend, including the Blob Ball, a street fair, an all-ages costume contest, and a one-day Mystery Science Theater 3000 Con. The movie was the first for a guy named Stephen McQueen, now better known as the iconic actor Steve McQueen. Blob Fest gets underway on Friday. What makes a good summer party better? Wearing white, of course. Michael Rubin, the local billionaire who hails from Lafayette Hill, just hosted a white party in the Hamptons, attended by the likes of Jay-Z and Beyonce, Tom Brady, Kim Kardashian, and Meek Mill. If you didn't get an invite, it's not too late to get a ticket to Camden-based entrepreneur Big Scott's annual white affair. It's on the Battleship New Jersey on Saturday, starting at 8 p.m. And make sure you wear white. We hear Scott is strict on the dress code. Since we're already on the Delaware River, let's head to Riverfest. The free event is happening at Glen Ford, the Gilded Age mansion on the banks of the Delaware. The All Ages Festival features music, art activities, and even kayaking. And there's access to the mansion where you can take a self-guided tour. Things get started at 1 p.m. and we'll have all that info on our website, www.whyy.org slash things to do. Speaking for myself, not sure that I'd have a reptile for a pet, but a lot of you do. If you're interested in all things reptile, head to the Greater Philadelphia Expo Center in Oaks on Saturday for the East Coast Reptile Super Expo. They'll have geckos, snakes, and lizards for sale along with all the things you need to take care of them. But don't let them sell you any snake oil. The show goes from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. There won't be snakes at Ballet X's performance of Sid, A Hero's Journey, but you can expect some sinuous moves. The contemporary ballet company will showcase them in a performance based on Siddhartha, Hermann Hesse's classic 1922 novel of a man searching for life's true meaning.
3: Sid, A Hero's Journey, is a ballet inspired by the novel Sid Arthur by Herman Hesse. When I was asked to see if
1: I would be interested in making a narrative work, one of the first things that popped into my head was the novel Sid Arthur because I really love the characters and I really love the sense of movement in the story. Lots of transformations happen, but of course the big one is spiritual transformation and what you gain from that and of course what you lose from that or what you give up from that.
2: That was choreographer Nicolo Fonte. Sid, A Hero's Journey goes through Sunday, July 23rd at the Wilma Theater. From sizzling dance performances to sizzling grills, let's head to Delaware for the Wilmington Street Food Festival. It's at the Tubman Garrett Waterfront Park on Saturday and Sunday. Expect offerings from 25 food trucks and restaurants, a crazy eating contest, a breakdancing expo, a cornhole tournament, and plenty of activities for kids. There's also going to be a cheese fry fountain, and I'm sold. Not to mention all the food is $5 or less. The fest starts at 2 p.m., but Sunday is already sold out, so get those tickets fast if you want to go. What's a weekend without friends? A pretty dull one. So take a few to the Matchbox 20 concert. The multi-platinum selling band is performing at the Freedom Mortgage Pavilion on Sunday in support of their latest album, Where the Light Goes, which came out in May. The show starts at 7 p.m. All good things must come to an end, and this week's edition of Things to Do is no exception. If you head to our website, whyy.org slash things to do, you can find out more about what you just heard and what free event the Barnes Foundation is hosting on Sunday. And you'll know what time to show up to Cheslin Preserve for their annual Friday Night Lights event. I'm Tanya Pendleton, and we'll be back next Thursday with more good weekend options. Until then, whatever you choose to do, have a great weekend, everyone. I don't
1: need no one to celebrate. Because all my friends, all my friends are here. All my friends, all my friends are here. <laughs> How do you see my shoulders moving? <laughs> I have a friend coming into town this weekend, so that was a very apropos uh, final song. That
0: is good. I will be resting, catching up on also, the rest that I lost also uh, this week. But the, the Beyonce it, the sleep Beyonce deprivation sleep, is real. Exactly, it's real. <laughs> and that, my friends, wraps up our show. Our producers our Debbie Builder, Paige. Murray Bessler and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. For more of our show, you can head on over to WHYY.orgslash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your pods. I'm Cherry Gregg. This is Studio 2.
1: I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. I'm also in Studio 2. Thank you for joining <laughs> us this week, folks. We will be back next week. Very exciting stuff lined up.